Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EVN Disrupt podcast. My name is Nijda Zadrian, and I'm the editor of the creative tech section here at EVN Report. Today, my guest was Mikhail Khachatryan, the CEO and co-founder of Wirestock, a platform that allows you to sell photos, vectors, and videos on the largest marketplaces online. We spoke about the founding story of the company, how they raised their seed round last year, and what they have planned for the future. Welcome, Mikhail. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Mikhail, let's start a little bit with your background. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up here in Yerevan. In Yerevan. And then where'd you, where'd you end up going to school? I went to the school number 114 uh, mm-hmm. um, for, for my like uh, high school and elementary and stuff. And then um, I got into a French university of Armenia for about freshman, sophomore, and then junior years. And oh, then, uh, no, for, for, uh, for college. Oh, for college. Yeah. It's a university in uh, Armenia called, in Yerevan, called uh, Yer- uh, French University of Armenia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I majored in like business. And then I, when I was at the end of my third year there, uh, one of my friends basically told me there is a program to go study in the US, mm-hmm. uh, specifically Utah State University which it was a place I had nothing, I had no idea about uh, at the time. Had you been to the US just, before? No. Yeah. And so for some reason I knew I just had to apply and I uh, had to go uh, be part of it. So I applied and got accepted and I left my sort of like quit the school here hmm. and moved to the US when I was 19. So you uh, transferred or? Tr- it was more like starting over okay. everything, yeah. Yeah. So I went there and started, you know, uh, a bachelor's program from almost from scratch. What were you studying? It was uh, business. Yeah, it was business for bachelors. Then I did like applied economics, statistics mm-hmm. for masters. Mm-hmm. Um, Again at Utah State? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like Utah? I've been recently telling this story to a lot of people. It's like it was a big, super massive like transition go- yeah. going from... Armenia 2007 yeah. is when I moved. It was like a little bit of a kind of a gloomy, dark, you know, I think, period for Armenia. Yeah. Uh, and moving from there to like a very bright, happy, <laughs> well, I'm the happiest state in, in the U.S. probably. Yeah. Uh, and uh, super cheerful. Yeah. And, and uh, it was completely different culture. Yeah. And so it was a big, big change and hard. Uh, hard to adapt to, yeah. But it took some time, but I really appreciated it after some time. Yeah. How different was the campus life from the French University of Armenia to Utah State? Utah State is a very interesting place. It's a really cool campus, university. Uh, like uh, it's got a really nice campus with a lot of student places and facilities and amenities. Like. Uh, so you basically live in a campus and spend your whole day in the campus. Right. Whereas it's, like a, little town. Yeah, it's a little town within yeah. a town, right. and the whole town is all about the university. Everyone's wearing the you know the university gear and the yeah. mascot and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You go to the football game, the basketball game. You yeah. know? So it's all about the it's you know the Aggies is uh, the mascot. Refer, the mascot, yeah. Mm-hmm. And whereas like the French university here or Pretty much any other university here is just a, a school in a city yeah. 
there you you just go go inside take some classes and leave yeah it's got that community feel too but to much uh, less degree than uh what i had there yeah yeah i went to school for a year in the states too i'm from canada originally and Uh that was the biggest difference from canadian campus life to u.s campus life was one that everybody, almost everybody lives on campus. It's really like a very close-knit community. That's community feel, I, yeah, for I sure. Really, I really loved. And it's actually, I think it was one of the most important pieces of my educational experience. Um, yeah, absolutely. And actually, like we'll get into this a little bit later, but one of the reasons why I got so into startups was because of that close-knit campus community. There were so many initiatives and communities on campus that were, whether it was pitch competitions or startups, you know, yeah. you, you meet some of your your friends that you know become your lifelong friends and then you end up being co-founders and i think that's such an important part that we sort of need to work on building in armenia absolutely yeah. yeah uh so did you were you involved in any startup activity in college not so much um i i did try a couple of things we had this idea to start like a group on type of thing because at the university we had people just handing out these coupons for yeah. like free pizza or yeah. buy one get yeah. one free pizzas and stuff yeah but we never started it then i had another idea that we built a prototype for it was for like uh, if you took a class already and someone else is taking that class you can like mentor them or help mm. them yeah. like a kind of a platform mm-hmm. and we built a prototype but never got it off the ground you never launched it and no and then yeah that was it i really didn't get into uh, building stuff until I moved back to Armenia. Mm-hmm. Were you uh, coding then or were you straight uh, on the no, business side? No, it's completely just more like products and, yeah. and design and things like that. And then when you ended up graduating, did you work for a few years in the US or did you come back to Armenia? I worked for a year at uh, Fidelity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a finance, you know, kind of a wealth management, yeah. a trading service. Mm-hmm. Uh, financial services company mm-hmm. so i worked there for a year um, you know learned a lot about the stock market trading and things like portfolio management mutual funds and things like that mm-hmm. and then i moved back after that you moved back after a year of yeah what were you doing in armenia before before you started wirestock so i moved back my background at the time was more into like finance and portfolio management and things like mm-hmm. that essentially i uh, i tried to kind of continue a career in finance in Armenia. But what I realized was that the things I learned over there, not applicable. Yeah, the market is uh, different. Uh, that much, you know, yeah. And the market is different, market is smaller. At the time, there was pretty much no uh, public companies or maybe one or two. Mm-hmm. And I think still there is just a few companies that have gone public. And so there's not a, an active kind of stock market here so right. I was a bit upset and like looking around for other opportunities mm-hmm. and at the time <laughs> I had uh, this friend who was a you know software developer and was really into building games mm-hmm. uh, mobile games this was like 2013 I would just see him on the street you know random like Yerevan you know, kind of run into people type of things. (laughs) I would just run into him, you know, every now and then. And he would just keep like convincing me to help him with his startup. Uh, And he was building like he had this really interesting uh, mobile game idea that he was really enthusiastic about building. And so he just kept asking me to help him with product development, financial stuff, fundraising, 
even like setting up a company in the US, like legal yeah. stuff. I kept refusing it, you know, I'm like, I don't know anything about software. Mm -hmm. Like I've never built anything myself. I don't know how I can help you. It was basically what I was telling him. And then he finally convinced me to meet with his investor, mm -hmm. who was like an, you know, his angel investor. We just kind of like at, at the moment, I was like, why not give it a try? So I kind of committed to, to helping him run or build this company. And so that's how I started into tech. Yeah. We were just building this mobile game. Mm -hmm. This was 2013 and we had nothing, we had no idea about. Let me ask you one more thing. Uh, why did you decide to move back to Armenia? So honestly, I never intended to stay or, or move permanently to America. Yeah. Like uh, since day one or since I left, I was like, I'm going there for school. Uh, and then maybe a couple of years of like working somewhere to get experience, etc. Although really, I mean, there were a lot of problems here back then, but I still had a lot of friends and I enjoyed my life here yeah. a lot and growing up. Uh, so I always wanted to come back. Yeah. So I started working. There was a moment I had to like figure out a way to, you know, get a visa mm -hmm. or get some like permanent, you know, like a green card or something. And I was like, I'm not going to commit to anything long term. I wanted to come back. So I just... Yeah. Back, yeah. So let's get back to your the startup with your the gaming startup with your friend. Uh, when you joined that early, were you were you joining as a founder or were you just a part of the early team? Or? It was like more of an advisor first, and then a, a co-founder, one of the main co-founders mm -hmm. at the end because I, I really got into the project. Yeah. yeah. What was it called? Uh, it was called Wizard Race. Wizard Race. Yeah. How far did you guys take it? Uh, we built it. It was a 3D game on like iPhones like an ios and it was basically wizards racing against each other okay it was pretty cool yeah is it still up uh, it's like you get on a broom and like you uh fly yeah and race against each other and we had different characters with different yeah. styles i don't know if it's still i don't think so but i can show you some uh videos so we built it we launched it and had like i don't know two thousand downloads uh and then we realized the game had so many problems. Yeah. Like the game design was awful. We really nailed the design design, mm -hmm. like the 3D uh, characters and the, the, the levels, mm -hmm. the worlds. They're really beautiful. Yeah. The CEO was really like super focused on like beautiful world design and yeah. level design. But the game design which is like the mechanism that keeps you in the game mm -hmm. and keeps you want to keep playing was just bad. Um, yeah. So if people would play, would be like, oh, they would be like, oh, this is a cool game, but they would not keep playing. Mm -hmm. And then we ran out of money. Um, you guys had funding? Yeah, so we had funding from this angel investor from Russia, who I'm still really close friends with. He, he really believed the idea he invested, but unfortunately it didn't work out. Yeah. For me, it was my first experience in the space, mm -hmm. how to do these things. So. Yeah. Before you ended up doing Wirestock, did you get more startup experience? Yeah, you... yeah I had a, the Wirestock is the first company where like I basically was kind of the CEO, yeah. kind of taking responsibility, like main, like I was the first person who left my job and committed full time and then started looking for co-founders and, yeah. and I had a co-founder at the time and then uh, others joined as well. Yeah, it was first company where I was like 
the, the main person team. responsible from yeah. the very beginning. But before Wirestock, I had was part of two or three other uh, startups. So after the wizard race, my friend and co-founder, who is now a co-founder of Wirestock as well, he and his friend started a, a dating uh, app in, in Dubai. I also joined as a co-founder, but like a, like a third co-founder. Yeah. I was helping them with like fundraising and, and marketing and things like that. It was an interesting company. We it was like Tinder. Mm-hmm. It's basically they built Tinder, but when you match with someone, you have like 24 hours to sort of uh, figure out what you want to do. And then after 24 hours, the chat would expire, and the only thing you could you could do at that point just to you, you could invite them out, mm-hmm. and we would suggest like restaurants and bars that we pulled from like Foursquare or yeah. Uh, other player or Yelp and stuff. That was the thing, and that that uh, went further. Kind of that that was more successful, pretty successful actually. We had like at some point we were like number one dating app in Dubai. Wow. Yeah, and uh, it was really popular. But we made some mistakes. That again was a really good learning mm-hmm. thing. Did the company us. exit or? And no, no, we just basically shut it down. At some point, yeah. The plan was always to do a startup, always to be a founder. Yeah, I always wanted to start things, realizing that I want to build like uh, sort of tech, yeah. uh, you know, like software products uh, came to me after this game, after mm-hmm. I realized the kind of scale you can uh, reach, uh, you know, anywhere you are in the world mm-hmm. when you're building software products is, is really yeah. uh, mind-blowing. So Yeah, I don't think there's any other industry that you could do it in. Not as fast and yeah. not as uh, not to the same yeah. size and scale. What would you say the biggest thing you took away from these startups that failed was? The first one is uh, I realized you know you have to have a team that can execute on the core yeah. idea or business because we outsourced a lot of the product development with the, this game hmm. to you didn't U- have a Ukraine. No co-founder. Yeah, I mean the CEO was, was a coder, but not a game developer right so yeah. we outsourced a lot of the game development and when we ran out of money we couldn't build anything yeah at that point so that was a huge mistake the second one the i learned how you know you have to iterate faster mm-hmm. because we had this like really this core idea that we were so like religiously believing mm-hmm. that you know you match, you know, 24 hours, the chat is gone and you have to invite them to these restaurants. Yeah. And no one was inviting them and we were still pushing yeah. the same, same story. Yeah. So we realized, you know, that like we could have done so many other things and still make it. You have to be far more mobile in a startup. Like yeah, you have to forget about your original idea, yeah. you know. You can't um, be religious about right. anything. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's get to Wirestock. How did you guys decide to... How did you guys decide to do the startup and how'd you go about building your team of co-founders? Yeah, after that first project company, I wanted to keep building something big, Mm -hmm. uh, something that millions can use and enjoy. Uh, And so uh, I was working at Pixar at the time. This was 2018. Like I worked there for two years and honestly, this this is how it happened. I was uh, watching YouTube, just random stuff just uh, not even for work, you know, just relaxing. This video came up of Vitalik Buterin, mm-hmm. uh, the founder of Ethereum. Yeah. And he was talking, he was on um, the, the, the TechCrunch mm-hmm. 
event. What is it called? Uh, disrupt. disrupt. Yeah. yeah. So he was on Disrupt and he, he was being like interviewed on stage mm -hmm. and he was talking about Ethereum and like kind of the decentralized applications and organizations and whatever the ideas were back then. Mm -hmm. And so I got really, really uh, inspired. Yeah. I was walking, you know, running around my apartment, you know, like thinking about ideas and yeah. what, how big this can be. And I, so I called my co-founder, his co-founder at Wirestock now, and uh, I was like, hey, you know, this can be really huge. Yeah. And you can build so many different applications on Ethereum, etc. And so he got enthusiastic too, and uh, he got excited about this too. And um, we were we were like, okay, what kind of decentralized application can we build, right? So the idea is like you have this Ethereum blockchain, and you can build smart contracts. You can have different kinds of transactions happening that can be you know recorded on blockchain, mm -hmm. etc. For this dating app, we were buying a lot of stock photos, mm -hmm. and we really liked the space you know like how easy it is to buy photos and stuff so he, he said you know how about we build a platform where people can buy and sell photos and videos etc and it can be on blockchain so like the copyright mm -hmm. transactions or licensing transactions are all on blockchain it would be mm -hmm. cool kind of more transparent and secure in a way you know etc and i loved it so we told our other co-founders who were had more technical background and could help us build uh, and execute on this. And we got all super excited. Yeah. And now here we were, you know, about to build this blockchain-based mm -hmm. stock photo platform. Mm -hmm. That's how we all came together. So it was me, uh, my non-technical co-founder, who was the head of product, CPO at Wirestock, and then two other uh, co-founders. Did you guys uh, all were, know each other? The, uh, uh, yeah. We all almost all knew each other from different kind of places, from different circles. Uh, and so, but we never built anything together, yeah. but we knew we, we, it would work. So how did you know that you would work well together? I think we had a lot of like things in common in terms of like values mm -hmm. and lifestyle hmm. with us. who was the C CPO. We, you know, I was friends since like high school and then Hove, we traveled in the U S together and then Vlad. I've known him for a while, you know, mm -hmm. from different, uh, from, we had like uh, friends, uh, like mutual friends and we just clicked, mm -hmm. right? So we just clicked and we knew, you know, we, we would, uh, we'd go a long way and we, we would enjoy working together most importantly and we yeah. could be friends too. Yeah. And so, um, so we just started, we really just got excited mm -hmm. about working together and then maybe a year, so we <laughs> started going to this blockchain events in Dubai uh, and like to uh, in other places. This is 2018. This is 2018. Yeah, it was like after the first kind of hi big hype yeah. uh, in, in altcoins yeah. and, and like Ethereum. And then it, it like plummeted uh, into 2018. And we started going to these events, meeting these like people that were kind of shady. Yeah, they were like kind of Ponzi schemes, yeah. Ponzi scheme situations. At the time, we were also talking to photographers, content creators, and we're like, oh, we have this amazing idea. It's going to change your life. You know, we're going to put all your content on blockchain. Whenever someone buys any of your photos, you're going to 
is going to be written on blockchain, see how cool it is. This is kind of like NFTs before NFTs became. It, it was thing. similar. Yeah, it was similar to NFTs. But multiple licenses. We were more thinking about like non-NFTs, so fungible tokens. Right, like you yeah. would you would transfer your photo to somebody and they would pay you in like wire coins. Hmm. But the idea of registering a piece of content on blockchain, it was was still there. Yeah. So it was really similar to what the, this new hype is uh, all about, you know, with the NFTs. Um, but what we found out was like, at the time, creators didn't really care about this, all these things. Coin space. And- uh, yeah, ha- selling, like, only, like having their content written on, you know, registered on blockchain or trading in coins, these things like that were, okay, futuristic, maybe cool if you're like a geek. Mm-hmm but uh, not really that uh, useful. They want to get paid and, yeah. for their work. And yeah, and they're comfortable in the US too. Right? Yeah, and we were in these communities with like old school photographers, like old school stock photographers. And what they were telling us is pretty, it was pretty consistent uh, among most of them was like, it's so hard to sell on so many different platforms yeah. and run accounts on so many platforms. Like there's just too many. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, like, I, I get really enthusiastic about things and I, like, it's hard for me to change my mind. But my other co-founders were like, I don't know if this idea is working out. It seems like nobody's buying into it. No one is really uh, Did you guys interested. get to the point where you actually did an ICO? We, no. We didn't even build, we didn't even build the, the product. Yeah. It, it, we had this website, like the landing page. And then it was, it was right before we were about to start building it. We realized it's not going to work. Yeah, uh, it's it's not going to be. You know, no one's going to use it essentially. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, yeah. So we were like, okay, now we have, we've come together. We like working uh, with each other, but the idea doesn't seem it's going to uh, work out. Mm-hmm. And we started like thinking about, okay, what else can we build for the same crowd for the same segment of creators or whatnot so uh and then we we came up with this new idea of wirestock which was basically giving creators one door access Mm -hmm. to multiple marketplaces from a single place Mm -hmm. kind of like an aggregator play um in this space and um and as soon as i heard that i was like that makes a lot of sense right So you guys pivoted to this to this idea that you're working on now. Walk us through exactly um, exactly what you guys do and what the process is for a photographer to start distributing their work through your platform. The world essentially the the space without Wirestock is the following. You know, yeah, you, you are a creator. You have you've created. I don't know. You've taken a thousand photos. Mm-hmm over you know over a few years and you want to sell you know you want to monetize you want to sell and make money with your content um you have to register and open accounts on multiple marketplaces multiple platforms right, like shutterstock uh, adobe, adobe yeah. yeah pond five yeah. the deposit photos canva yeah there's potentially 10 20 different marketplaces if not more and those are just and the main you, ones yeah. yeah and then if you want to sell prints yeah then there is another set of marketplaces mm-hmm. that you have to go register and then you have to upload your content on every single marketplace make sure you meet the requirements of every single marketplace mm-hmm. 
then add payment methods on every single marketplace and get your money out. Yeah. A lot of repetitive, but a bit different work for every single marketplace that you have to do, right? So instead of that, um, what we do is we we allow creators like to upload their content, like have a single account at a single website mm-hmm. or, or platform and manage their content in a single platform. You guys are kind of like an agency. Yeah. A very big one. Yeah. We connect creators and marketplaces. Right you know, kind of our core business. That was the first big pivot, you know, going from a blockchain startup to a an aggregator mm-hmm. kind of tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second kind of pivot or iteration was I started reaching out to photographers as soon as we had that first product, you know, that was basically just allowing uplo- allowing to distribute content on multiple marketplaces from a single, that was it. Mm-hmm. That was the whole product. I started reaching out to photographers um, and asking them to upload their content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would start uploading their content. And then in the stock world or any any basically content monetization environment, you have to ha- add like keywords to your right. images. So uh, keywords and captions, keywords help you help your content get discovered. Mm-hmm. Captions or descriptions help it look more like professional, professional or sellable. Yeah, And so... Um, that was the second pain uh, mm-hmm. that we discovered was that creators really hate, especially modern day creators who are used to like super easy interfaces and experiences like Instagram and TikTok and whatnot, were super like non-enthusiastic about adding keywords. Mm-hmm. And they would just upload a bunch of photos and leave. Yeah. And then I would reach out and be like, oh, I forgot the keywords. And they're like, oh, no, I, I got something else to do. Sorry. Right. So what, what we ended up doing, you know, just basically in, out of like despair and um, just uh, not knowing what else to do is basically doing adding the keywords ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would just start, okay, here we, you know, we've got like 100 photos, super sellable, mm-hmm. monetizable, but we don't have keywords for them. So let's write the keywords ourselves. And so we started doing that. And then as soon as we started doing that, we realized, you know, okay, now they're coming back and they love seeing their photos listed on these marketplaces. And, and that, that was the second other, piece, you know, that we added is add the keywords ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so now on that initial layer of, of aggregation, uh, we added uh, the, the sort of automatic keywording mm-hmm. and captioning piece. So now you had two kind of pain points that were solved Solver, by a single yeah. product. Yeah. You said automatic. Are you doing that using machine learning or do you have teams that work the, on we, it? In the beginning, it was all like manual. And then we added a few sort of uh, layers of like automation and then like uh, now it's it's sort of like a combination of manual and uh, ml based keywording and we use both like uh, a computer vision model that mm-hmm. would like sort of uh, understand the context and detect objects and uh, suggest keywords mm-hmm. based on just a photo itself and then we have uh, a model that you know, you write like a certain a few keywords and it would basically generate more keywords. Mm. So a text to text model and a photo or image to text model. 
So if I'm a photographer, I can put in a few keywords. The wire stock will generate more for me, and then I can approve them and delete some if I think they're not matching. Yeah, what we are aiming, the type of experience we want to provide is you basically upload your content, much like you would upload to Instagram, mm -hmm. and then whatever else needs to be done will be done by us. Yeah. So curating or reviewing... Uh, and then um, keywording, adding metadata, asking you to provide additional things yeah. if there is a need. For example, if there's a person in your photo and you want to license it commercially, you have to provide like model releases hmm. uh, and things like that. So Yeah, yeah. And then um, do I as a photographer pay upfront for the service or is it a commission-based thing? It's all commission now. Uh, we might add like uh, some sort of a premium plan uh, we're working on that will, you know, give like additional uh, perks mm -hmm. type of thing. But as of right now, it's all free, only commission based. How did you guys go about getting your early users? How'd you find them? The first product we built, um, I mean, the first version of Wirestock, it was that idea, that, that uh, service I was telling you about, it just just pure aggregation, upload in one place, submit to many. Mm -hmm. And then, so when we first built it, our just natural next move was to reach out to people who were already selling mm -hmm. photos on these marketplaces, yeah. like creators on Shutterstock or Adobe, etc., asking them if they would want to switch or start selling through us because mm -hmm. we're easier, faster, etc., and so when I started reaching out, or we, we started reaching out, uh, the the feedback was we don't really need we don't want to pay you fifteen percent commission, yeah, because we have already figured out ways to do it. And these were people who were really good at it already. They were already really good at it. Someone even told me uh, that they had he had hired his younger brother to do these things. Yeah. And he was paying him like a <laughs> commission or yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whatever from sales. Yeah. And so they were really hesitant to move their images from their personal account to like a master account at yeah. Wirestock, like an aggregator account, and also pay us commission. Yeah. So it was, again, like a moment of kind of realization and a little bit of a, like a panicking, thinking, okay, we built something for these people, but they don't need yeah. it apparently. So we decided to kind of switch and start go after people who weren't selling on these marketplaces. At the time, just kind of uh, instinctively, but go, looking back kind of retrospectively, it was an interesting move. Mm -hmm. So we started going after these people who either tried selling and failed mm -hmm. or haven't even tried or haven't even heard of stock photo yeah. uh, selling or monetization. That's where we had a really strong like product market fit is with, with this group. Um, so we started reaching out and the responses we were getting. Were How were you like, reaching out? Where, where were you finding these people? Um, it was on like more of like new gen platforms. So, you know, like uh, where the new generation of creators was... Uh, like forums online? Uh, it was like Instagram and forums oh, okay. and personal portfolios, Unsplashes, Pexels, you know, kind of newer platforms where the new generation of creators was mm -hmm. promoting themselves or um, uh, uploading their content. Yeah. And so that's where we had a much 
stronger sort of like product market fit mm -hmm. uh, and the responses we had crazy so it was like messaging and emailing mm -hmm. we had like 15 percent conversion rate mm -hmm. on like cold wow. uh cold outreach so there was really a stuff. demand for this uh yeah it was super clear there was demand it was a no-brainer yeah so like you already have content that you're uploading why not make and some extra better. money yeah. without making any extra effort yeah how long did it take you to get your first thousand users <sighs> probably two or three months two or three months yeah. since starting this iteration this yeah this iteration yeah and then how did you go about scaling it from there? Because what are your numbers like today? How many users? We users just uh, reached 50,000 creators um, last week. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks. That was a kind of a challenge um, because we were just relying on one kind of channel for growth. And it was like this outreach, you know, direct messaging and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so it wasn't scalable enough the mailing yeah i mean stuff. yeah right so then we start the challenge was all right how many other or what other channels are there for outreach how, how what are the other ways that we can reach people mm -hmm. that were cost effective and uh, would make sense you know in terms of the business model and stuff in, in a few months we started finding other ways of acquiring uh, and finding creators mm -hmm. Can you talk about what those other ways were? Maybe just uh, broadly, like yeah. we have, you know, several things that uh, are working for us, like, but mainly it's like recommendations. Mm, referrals. So, so yeah, referrals, like creators recommending Wirestock to other creators. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best marketing that, you can do. Is that is the best way. Yeah. Yeah. For, for us, at least. Recently, you guys raised a $2.3 million seed round. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, what are your what are your plans for uh, for expansion after this? The expansion we uh, intend to do is uh, essentially um, it has to do with like scaling uh, our platform. Mm -hmm. So um, we have you know uh, what we focus on is the number of creators that use Wirestock and uh, upload their content and sell their content through Wirestock. So uh, we also look at the size of our library, the size of the uh, and volume of the content that we're distributing, mm -hmm. and then the number of channels that we are integrated with. Yeah. Uh, so those are the main things that we focus on. So we want to basically, uh, you know, 10x increase uh, all these uh, metrics, you know, tenfold uh, in the next, you know, a few months. Wow, next few yeah. months. That's ambitious. Well, next... <laughs> few quarters maybe uh, so you you guys were one of these startups that uh, raised over the last 18 months there's this, been this flood of armenian startups right. raising large amounts of capital absolutely uh i met with your co-founder vlad uh a few uh, yes. last week and he was really excited about what you guys are doing he's very high energy um absolutely, and uh, yes. he told me that when you guys were raising you you didn't have a single in-person or most of your meetings with uh potential investors were over Zoom or some sort of other You're remote right. way. How has that culture changed since COVID for raising money, capital? I remember um, reaching out to funds in the US um, like back in 2014, 15, 16, and they would always just kind of uh, consistently, you know, uh, ask for like an in-person meeting mm -hmm. before. Like and grab a and not, not even a meeting yet, just like being close. Yeah. 
um, you know, uh, having presence in the area, you know, the Bay Area or whatever the region was, let alone like, of course, meeting uh, in person was, I think, uh, what uh, people were expecting, unless you were really like soup killing it like crazy, you know, like like on a, some sort of a massive wave of popularity or mm-hmm. whatnot, right? Uh, and of course, introductions and everything is still the case, but it seems like these uh, Zoom meetings are becoming, uh, or, or online meetings are becoming a standard way of even like uh, starting and closing deals. Yeah. And there is less of a need to meet in person, although mm-hmm. I have been asked to like meet in person and I have met in person as we were uh, raising this round. And uh, I think it always helps, uh, you know, to go out, get a, you know, grab some coffee, yeah. get a drink or whatnot, you know, and uh, build this kind of uh, relationship with uh, maybe advisors or yeah. uh, angels or VCs, but uh, less of a requirement, less of an absolute type of thing you have to do. Today than it was two than years it was ago, like before COVID, yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, you have a pretty big team here in Armenia now. It's your primary offices are mm-hmm. in Armenia. But do you guys also have a presence in California? Uh, we uh, have just a couple of a few uh, people uh, that are part of our team that are mm-hmm. in uh, California and Colorado. Uh, and uh, primarily like ML and sales, mm-hmm. like the BD. Mm-hmm. Uh, Business development ch- 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 Yeah, areas. Yeah. In California, yes, yeah. Do you split your time between Armenia and California? Yeah, yeah. You're there for some parts of the year, and yeah, a few Armenia. months, uh, mostly here, but then maybe like twenty percent, yeah, twenty five percent there. What's it like managing a global team like that? Is it easy or it can be hard? You know what's really hard is if you have a team in one location that's working in house from an office, mm-hmm. and then you have other people in other parts of the world that are remote. Yeah. And so it's hard to kind of maintain that same level of energy and kind of uh, team energy when certain people are seeing each other and like clicking like this, you know, every day. And then the others are only remote. Yeah. I think that's a bit of a challenge, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you. But then if you have people in different teams that are not maybe uh, interacting with each other as much, I think that can uh, that can be okay. So is it kind of like. It's better to have all remote uh, than some remote and some I think so. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Because those people aren't left out of that office culture. Exactly, yeah. But then I think if, if you have, let's say, a sales team that's all remote, yeah. but I don't know, the, the marketing team, team or... is all in-house, that I think that can be fine. That can, that can work out okay. Right. But if, if part, of the, part of the engineering team is remote and yeah. then part of it is you know, in-house, then the meetings and this energy might not be as... I tend to agree. uh, Yeah, yeah, as good. Yeah. How big is your team in Armenia now? We are about 30 people. Mm -hmm. How much of that is a technical team? quarter of that uh, is technical. Mm -hmm. And then you guys have a lot of keyword specialists and content writers. That's a separate team uh, outside of this uh, group, you know, that, that we have like a big remote content team. Mm-hmm. Not in California. Uh, no, it's like around the world. Uh, around the world, yes. Yeah. Let's get to our uh, final question. What's the what's the grand vision for Wirestock? Where do you see this in five to ten years? We see clearly that there are 
dozens of millions of creators out there who are creating super interesting and commercially interesting content mm -hmm. that has has or can have monetary value we also see that big majority of them are not aware of that the potential, uh, the potential or the ability to for their content to generate uh, money for them yeah uh, and not just money but also sort of like positive uh or, or get some recognition or can be appreciated by others right so what we are building is essentially what we want to do is reach all of these people and have them use Wirestock and be able to sell mm -hmm. and promote themselves and get appreciated, recognized through our platform. Mm -hmm. So that's, and then while we're doing that, obviously adding as many different monetization channels for them as possible so that a piece of content can have its maximum potential of generating income, whether it's through stock photos or prints or NFTs or whatever other yeah. channel there is. You, you mentioned NFTs, that er, that early idea that you guys had to do this on the blockchain, do you still see a path for that? Yeah, uh, what we uh, have done uh, since this very early pivot is listen to our customers. Yeah. So we don't build anything unless or until we get, for the most part, we get a certain signal yeah. uh, from our creators. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have been getting some signals about NFTs and other crypto sort of features, but it's not currently not as much for us as you know to to be able to kind of prioritize it and move something else away right. to focus on this. But it's definitely uh, like we keep a close eye on this. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mikhail, thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you luck with that. And I hope you'll join us again sometime in the future as Thanks the company continues to grow. Pleasure. Thank you.